Hey, everybody. Welcome to ATD Greater Atlanta's web series, Building Our Vision, uh, where I sit on my couch and try to figure out exactly what happened in 2020 and how we can capitalize on the opportunities that it's bringing. Um, to help us figure all this out is Crystal Kadakia. Crystal is a two-time TEDx speaker. She's an expert in the future of work and uh, the best-selling author of The Millennial Myth, and also the developer of the learning cluster design model. So thank you so much for joining us, Crystal. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here, Neha. Yay. Um, so where are you joining us uh, today? Yeah, today I'm joining from Austin, Texas, so way in the middle of the country. But normally I'm calling from my home in Brookhaven, Georgia. So same Atlanta atmosphere, but now Yay. in a different place. <laughs> yeah. So have you changed? Are you working from home now? Um, with our quarantine situation or what what does work look like for you? So that's actually been fascinating because for me, I went back and did location free starting in like 2013. And then I started my own business and that has been location free. So for me during COVID, it's been interesting to watch how people who have been in that nine to five fixed time place environment shift to a remote working environment. And that's been really interesting to watch because for me, like a lot didn't actually change. We had our routines, we had figured out like how to manage our energy during the day and um, you know, how to really go where the work needs us to go. And then immediately when COVID started, I started watching people try to copy and paste their corporate environment back home, like back-to-back -back meetings and suddenly you realize, um, well, I don't actually think it was all of a sudden, but over time people realize, wow, like back-to-back -back Zoom meetings is really hard. And we, we maybe have to work a little bit differently now that we're in this remote space. And so it's been interesting watching the learning happen. Um, and then I think for me, it's been more of figuring out how to deal with so many people wanting to have Zoom meetings. And when I was used to having actually a little bit more space um, between things, but yeah. now that everyone was remote, everyone wants to meet a certain way. And so that was a, a lot, uh, that was probably more of a, the adaptation was getting used to more people joining the same world I was in. Mm -hmm. You're like, guys, there's a better way to do this. <laughs> Hold on. I've already figured it out. <laughs> yeah. And it was meeting. We definitely try to instantly copy and paste the world we know to whenever we get into a new environment and it's like, okay, but the whole context has changed. And so you need to reevaluate your norm. It's got to shift. Yeah, definitely. So, okay. So your last book, not your most recent book, but your last book was The Millennial Myth, Transforming Misunderstanding into Workplace Breakthroughs. Um, and you talked a lot about how digital transformation is kind of the biggest influencer in our lives today. And that's why we see some generation gaps and stuff. But now, I mean, we're now we're totally digital. Literally, we're 100% digital. Um, so, I mean, can you just describe a little bit about what does digit digitization of our world really mean? And, you know, and now that we're seeing it and living it, like, how does that change about how we work and learn? That is such a great question, Neha, because I think one of the common misnomers is when people talk about digital transformation, they talk about it like it's a silo. Like this is one part of our company, one part of our company is managing it. In, and it's all about kind of bringing in new technologies and it's that change management cycle. Um, and that's all that 
group's job, that department's job, and that's that, that's digital transformation. And in reality, that's not the case at all. And we're seeing that, of course, this year, but even before this year, digital has changed our way of life. It's changing the way people behave. It's changing our expectations. It's remapping our brains in different ways. As you can look up a lot of research around how much digital is affecting just from a really pervasive standpoint, us as individuals, us working together in groups. Mm -hmm. So when you really think about digital transformation, I've actually started using the phrase digital workplace culture because it's broader than the, that notion of we're bringing in a software. It's really more about our ways of working and relating are shifting um, both in the workplace and outside of the workplace. And so when you take um, a magnifying glass and you look really just at the workplace, you start to see how when we're learning now, there's been a number of different changes when, where, how we learn has, has changed. Um, who we learn from or who we think of and hold up as experts is changing. Um, just looking at how we do quality control and how we have gatekeepers who used to lift up experts or say this is quality material. Well, today, if one person says that, I would rather trust the a thousand people who've liked it and given it a rating or recommended it rather than it being held up by one person. So that's just a few ways that learning changes um, and that really that how, when, where component of it is such a big shift because in the past, we were always learning. We were learning through other people. We were learning by observing, but L&D didn't necessarily have the technology to reach people in those moments. Um, we were limited in, in the ways in which we could reach people and now some of that limitation, some of that barrier has gone away. And so this, you know, we, we talk about continuous learning, like it's a brand new thing that we never needed or never wanted before, but really people have had growth mindsets. You know, that's not like a new phenomena. Um, granted things weren't necessarily forcing us to have to grow and change as much because things weren't changing as fast. Um, but now that it is, we can actually, we also have the technology to impact the ways in which people want to learn. So um, from a learning perspective, that's some of the ways I see digital pervasively making a change. Mm -hmm. So do you, so do you see people when you, when you say, okay, we're learning in different ways and different times of the day and stuff like that. Like um, I think somewhere you mentioned that, okay, people are learning over lunch these days, you know, they're like instead of sitting in a workshop or something, they're, um, you know, pulling out their phone and watching a quick video or something or going on Wikipedia and learning something real quick. Like, what are some of the different kind of newer, more creative ways that people are learning these days? Yeah, so um, I think I'll start with some kind of what I actually now think of as basic, um, but then I'll tell you some of the things I'm experimenting with. Um, so some of the basic things I think of is podcasts. Uh, like in the past, I think people really didn't see commuting time as a time of learning or a moment of learning. And yet that's probably pre-COVID. One of the major things I've been hearing is, yeah, I listen to podcasts on my commute and that's, it, and it's fun. Like it's fun. It's actually like a break from the work. And it's a time where people are learning about something that's just personally interesting to them. Sometimes it's work related, sometimes it's not. So 
Uh, I often hear people listening to podcasts while they're cooking in the evening, COVID times. That's like, you know, people got tired of Netflixing and they're still listening to other forms of media. And what we often kind of minimize is content consumption. Mm -hmm. Content consumption is learning. It's happening in that moment. So I see that a lot with COVID of people using um, moments like that to learn and ways uh, of learning from, from that perspective. Um, some cooler ways that I see are more cutting edge is I think there's a lot to be said for the gaming industry and how people are used to thinking of video games as, I guess, kind of like Netflixing, right? Like that kind of lazy thing you're doing all day and you're sucked into and you're brain dead. Yeah, yeah you're, you're I, just sitting, set like static. Yeah, and <laughs> watching people with how advanced um, gaming technology is becoming at, at showing you and and letting you experience real environments. Um, my husband right now, he's interested in becoming a pilot and he was already really into drones. And so he's been learning drone flying via gaming oh, and cool. then he has his real drone. So he practices, um, you know, on his computer and then he goes and he practices with the real drone. And then eventually, you know, he wants to actually fly real planes. And so looking at how these technical skills, how much that's evolved and how something that we might've thought of as just fun is changing. And it's a very social uh, exercise as well. So in that, like he's often, uh, he can actually play like these drone simulators with another person who's not even located in the same place. And they'll be going through the same drone simulator at the same time. Yeah. Um, And so that's pretty cool. There's like social learning involved in that. Uh, that's the last one I'll mention is social learning in general. Uh, watching what's happening with communities is incredible. So this year, one of the awesome things we got to do is we, uh, so we have another book, Designing for Modern Learning, which we'll talk a little bit more about. Yeah. But part of that, that learning cluster design model, we used to teach it in an in-person workshop for the last five years through ATD, two days, fantastic workshop. Well, with COVID, I had to look at, well, what can we do differently and not just think about it. I think a lot of times with COVID, people thought of, um, we just have to move to e-learning and it's like a step down. It's like, oh no, I'm gonna lose all of this amazing stuff that I had in person and now it's going to be online. You know, and it's like this huge drag. I, I don't like to design like that. I like to think about what's possible now that wasn't possible before. Like, what can I make the most of? So with this virtual it's a great workshop, that's a great attitude <laughs> yeah i'm a very possibility oriented thinker that's like a big part of just me in my practice and and so with designing this workshop we took it from two days to two weeks hmm. and we did it all through slack so that's oh. really cool because i first thought about uh you know do i want to host this on an lms and then i was like you know in the class we're teaching modern learning design that's the learning cluster design model is all about how do you design modern learning. So I really wanted to walk the talk with that too. And a big part of our model is social and immediate learning. It's not just about formal learning where it's like a very fixed time, place, and sequence. It's also about those unplanned moments of learning. And so I wanted that to be the center of this workshop design. And so we actually host the entire experience through Slack. That's where the uh, materials are even stored. And I talked to Slack about it and they were like, yeah, we usually have people use Slack to augment their classes, but not make it the core vehicle. 
Yeah. So um, I would say that's like a third really, I mean, it's something I'm in the middle of experimenting with. We've done two sessions now. And what's so cool about it is because it's over two weeks, people are actually in the flow of work during this workshop and they're able to bring that to the social learning community uh, and talk about it. And oh, that's awesome. we always have people working on a pro- real life work project during the workshop, but now they're working on it over two weeks and, and really getting a chance to engage with each other over a longer period of time. So there's some things possible that really weren't possible in those two days that were- yeah. That's awesome. So how does that work exactly in Slack? So is it that you do a meeting together with everybody and then you're like chatting in Slack and accessing materials in Slack or is there some kind of video component to that? Yeah, there is. Absolutely. So we have like a self-study portion where, you know, like it's basically like we have videos that are posted in Slack and then we have conversation threads going on about each video. So even though it's self-study, you know, you have this social learning um, available to you, this, con- this ongoing dialogue. And then we do our live sessions in Zoom. Um, but even then, during the live sessions, if you want to take notes on it in Slack, you have that there. Um, or as we're planning for the live meetings, you know, people are on their own time contributing their questions for the class or that kind of thing. Um, so it's really through the design of building in moments for reflection and moments for dialogue through Slack and having the actual materials there so people can comment on them directly. Yeah. Um, those are some of the ways in which it works. Yeah, that's awesome. I, That's amazing. I think that's really cool. I, I've attended a couple of virtual conferences that have integrated the chat function and polls and stuff with the live model. And that kind of reminds me of that. And the social learning is so great because I feel like that's where all of the real kind of, you know, the interesting thing, not not that the you know presentations aren't interesting, but seeing how people are reacting and seeing how excited everybody is in the chat is like the fun part of the meeting for me at least. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. And that's something I think all of us can think about too. Um, that's something I really haven't put a lot of thought into yet, but it's interesting to me that in the past we had the presenter or the expert as the expert yeah. And to me now, that actually, as I think about modern learning and how things are changing, um, that expert is almost to me the table stakes. It's almost like a flipped perception from the past. Like in the past, I feel like the students are students and the experts were the experts. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like the experts are the table stakes. And what I want is the is to create an atmosphere of collective wisdom to build on that expert. Yeah. Um because a lot of times I feel like that's what was understated in our previous world is that there's so much diversity of thought and perspective and generative learning and learning what you can't predict for or plan for that happens from the collective. Yes. And that's on top of the expert. That's not, you know, do you know what I'm saying? So 100% like perception there as we yeah. move into this modern learning world is how can we use the expert to launch a collective wisdom um, created, you know, generative learning, uh, transformative learning kind of environment. Definitely. I mean, I think we, we used to be a traditional learning experience would be, okay, I'm watching a speaker and I'm sitting in a crowd of, you know, whatever, 20, 50, hundred people. And the one person is talking and everybody else is silent. And as opposed to, okay, well, there's this huge group of people that we could all learn from and the speaker can facilitate, could facilitate that learning 
um, and now with chats and stuff, you know, we can kind of see, oh, what is everybody else thinking about? It's just the speaker is kind of the inspiration for whatever the real thing is, you know, which is They're cool. I mean, great, right? Like it, yeah. having someone who's already put in a ton of thought and effort into something, it really that not I don't want to minimize what inspiration means too. Mm -hmm. And and there's the more. So it's just like in this conversation for me, like you know, I can say, wow, that's a thought I haven't really gone into yet. And it's yeah. becoming, you know, inspired by it. I've got this expertise. And then you're you're building more into that by your questions, your reflections on it. Yeah, exactly. So how can we, you know, you think about our vision for the future and it's that's a very interesting way to think about our vision for the future, I think. Like, how can we as L&D be that we put that time and expertise in? And then how do we create that environment for more, for unplanned, unpredicted learnings um, that we then rebuild back into our expertise? Yeah. Um, okay, great. I feel like we're breaking new ground right now. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so, okay, so kind of going back to how life has changed everybody's digital we're experience we know we're experimenting with new um modalities of learning and things so how have different generations of people kind of reacted to this change like do you in your experience have you seen that younger people are just like quick on the uptake ready to go are older people struggling more is that like a generalization that, you know, I'm just kind of making up right now. Like, I don't, like what's, how are people reacting to, to this change? So, yeah, I tend to think of it as a generalization. I think initially when all these tools showed up on the stage, maybe there was a bit more of a generational gap because I think that there's an amount of time um, that it takes for adoption, mm -hmm. you know, of new, of new in mm -hmm. general. But now that it's here, and it's been here for a decade, right? I think we've gone through a lot of these things for a decade. Mm -hmm. I think it comes down a lot to people and they're, I would rather think of it more as, you know, there's people who are always going to take kind of the easy road. Like what's the least I need to do? Yeah. And then there's always gonna be people who challenge themselves. And then there's gonna be people who are, you know, like to be challenged by others. Like maybe it's a competitive zone. So. I think it's more of a difference in motivations around what allows someone to feel more um, comfortable or more willing to try out these different ways of learning. Um, because I think we all have a resistance to change at the end of the day. Like once I start learning through certain methods, that's kind of what I generally use, you know, and you know, the chances of me trying something new, it's usually going to happen because somebody forces me to do it or someone highly recommends it and then I go and I try it but for me for example even if my husband's learning drones this way I just don't want to do it like when I'm done with all my computer work for the day I want to learn by being outside so if I was into drones I would much more likely be that outside person rather than the gaming person um and that's you know and so I've never really gotten deep into the gaming world yeah if that change if there if a something changes my motivation around that and you know someone took the time to understand oh okay she's already in front of a screen all day long and that's her big biggest barrier then we start talking about different ways to design for different what we call learner personas so i think it's less um generational i find that generational in general 
doesn't really contribute tons to differences in learning methods, times, or places. Um, but I do think everyone has their different barriers for different performance gaps and their own lifestyle might pose or work style might pose particular barriers to trying out different things. And learning those, I think is really important. And that's something we talk about as building learner personas. Yeah, I think that's great. I'm glad that you kind of checked that um, that impulse of mine to just kind of ascribe everything to oh millennials or boomers or you know whatever. I mean, it's it's much more complicated than that. And I I mean we talk about um, like intersectionality and you know all of these different okay everybody has a different intersection of circumstance. So of course everybody is going to learn in different ways and want to learn in different ways. Um, and yeah, figuring and out yeah concrete example of that like because actually you just made me think of a really concrete example so one of the things I often find with gener older generations is they just lack confidence with trying out a new technology and they're worried about breaking it and doing you know like really screwing yeah. it up mm -hmm. and what I found that was so fascinating was I, I gave a talk for an educators conference and at that conference, I had multiple, multiple teachers come up to me and tell me that Generation Z, because they grew up constantly uh, in schools using like Google Cloud or cloud-based cloud softwares for schools, uh, schoolwork like Blackboard and whatever, mm -hmm. that they, when, if they get asked to download a file or to work in Microsoft Office on a downloaded Excel sheet on their desktop, it was terrifying for them. So, you know, it's, so that's why I, I really dispelled my personal beliefs or notions around um, generations being a reason why someone doesn't try something. At the end of the day, to me, trying new things, it's more about our human tendencies to adopt or have resistance to change. And it, that comes from lack of confidence, fear, you know, there's all these other things that go into resistance to change that I think are much more relevant than um, generations in this particular case. Yeah, okay, that's great. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> it's, it must have been kind of a weird conclusion for you to reach after, so your last book was about the millennial myth and you really kind of, uh, I, at least to me, it was posed as like a generational study, right? Of like, this is how different. And then I, the conclusion is, okay, well, there's no such thing as. Um, actually the myth. So in the book, right. a lot of what I talk about is, you know, hey, this stuff isn't really about generations. It's not that, I do think generational gaps exist. I just don't think that they're really the cause of all of the misunderstanding we have between generations today. To me, a lot of that is rooted in digital transformation. And it's, so the myth is really like, hey, you're, you're thinking that millennials are this, this, and this, and stereotypes, and really, you know, there's also boomer stereotypes, there's also Gen X stereotypes, but really none of those generational stereotypes are at the root cause of this misunderstanding we're experiencing. It's really that digital has just transformed the world so much, and it's a before and an after. So. A lot of what I do in the millennial myth is go through stereotype by stereotype and I just show the different perspectives if you grew up in a pre-digital world versus a digital world and how they're both equally valid. It's just it's a vast amount of change for us to uh, adapt to and 
you know, we just need to seek to understand these different perspectives uh, of life that we've grown up in. Yeah. So how did you go from studying um, generations to your current work, which is this new model, the learning cluster design model? So what made you go from that research to this kind of design thinking model? Yeah, super, super interesting question. I'm definitely somebody who uh, I just love too many things. I'm someone who's just into solving problems and a wide variety of problems at that. Um, so, abstract yeah. problems. <laughs> yeah, like, so I was kind of describing a little bit my, about my background. I actually started out as a chemical engineer. And um, back then, I re pretty quickly realized in my career that I was all about people and wanting to apply my problem solving systems thinking mindset towards people. And um, so my first role in the people space was as a training manager. And um, after that role, uh, I realized I love training and I kept on coming across this gap, even as a training manager between generations. And so I actually left the corporate world, I started my own business, and I really focused on um, dispelling this myth so that way we could actually evolve the workplace for our digital age. So for me, it's, I've kind of always had this bigger end game of I saw a lot of leaders using generation gap as their excuse to not evolve their yeah. workplace. And, you know, they'd be like, oh, well, this is just a millennial thing. And of course, 15 years later, it's like, well, it's not just a millennial thing. It's actually the rest of our lives <laughs> moving forward. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we kind of need to change. And um, so that was, you know, that was actually my whole thing was just explaining like, look, you are scapegoating generations rather than actually doing the courageous hard work to evolve workplace culture, which is not an easy thing to do at all. So I would say that for the last eight years, I've really been focused on workplace culture overall, and I have never really left the training side behind. So one piece of workplace culture is learning and development, um, and continuous learning has continued to become a bigger and bigger need to grow in, in organizations. And so to be honest, right now, the design for modern learning, learning cluster design model, it's one part of my business, and, and I'm still focusing on diversity and inclusion, employee engagement, organization development work, innovation culture, kind of solve a lot of different types of problems, uh, but all related to how do we really leverage human potential in our workplace. Yeah. And, and that's really what gets me the most. So, okay, so when you're talking about solving different workplace problems um, and the kind of things that you see, so like what is the kind of old or current model that you're trying to evolve past? Like, you know, what, um, what about our like nine to five model or, you know, kind of the old way of doing things are you trying to solve for and why aren't they working? Yeah, so I should really not use the word problems and solving because half the time I don't actually believe these things have a solution, but it's more of a uh, more of that building that capability of constantly evolving. Um, so with that little caveat in mind of just language, nitpicking my own language, um, when you look at the industrial age, and that was really when we started, you know, large corporations, we started with this kind of mass manufacturing environment. The industrial age was all about talent 
being used to create routine efficiency processes. That's really the goal of talent is we want people create, being able to create the same thing uh, to the same quality level as much as possible. Well, what happened at the digital age, and, and so, so let me just make that clear, our entire organizational culture was based around that. So managers are trying to manage people doing that. Training was oriented more around technical, repeatable compliance, right? Like you only need something once a year because it's that we focused on once a year training that um, is often foundational in nature, like the first time you're learning something. And then from that point, it's on the job, right? You just mm -hmm. go and you advance your skills in doing that same thing you are doing, but better and better, um, maybe dealing with more and more. Um, that's what the workplace looked like. Everything about our organizational culture, it needed to be at a set time and place because when you're creating widgets, it, widgets happen in a set time and place um, and everything could be tied to that. So co here comes the digital age. What's the biggest fear we all have right now? Robots are going to come and automate all of these processes, right? Because mm -hmm. the repeatable efficiency, those kinds of things, robots can do that. Yeah, better. They don't have to sleep. Better. Yeah. <laughs> so now talent is actually being shifted. We have to ask that question, what is talent good for in this environment? And we're seeing that. We're seeing everyone moving towards more complex capabilities, being strategic, working with and through people is becoming more and more important, um, being creative, right? All of these kinds of things, that's what we want people using their skills for. So that's all everything that needs to change, right? So our organizational culture that was very fixed in time and place and based on people's performance being very clearly connected to what they're doing is like a one, you know, how much time you put in creates workout. Well, you can't as easily say if someone puts eight hours of time in front of their computer, you're getting eight hours of widgets out. Right. It just doesn't work like that. So every single thing that created you know, those repeatable processes from people now has to be rethought of what of that is still true. So what do we still need to be, do we still need people creating repeatable efficient processes around? Mm -hmm. And then what do we need to empower people to do the rest of the work? What's strategic, collaborative, creative in nature. And in that, all of these different, that's why I work on so many problems because that's what drives me is, you know, diversity and inclusion is different in a world where you needed everything to be the same versus now where you want people to be different. And then you want to figure out how to come together around those differences because you know that's going to lead to innovation. Um, employee engagement looks different when, you know, you were focused on we need people to do the same things. So it's mostly rewards and compensation. Now we're talking about people wanting to learn and grow their careers. And people always wanted to do that. It's mm -hmm. just, that's not how, that's not what created profit in organizations. Um, right. L&D needs to change from just being technical compliance, one and done processes to continuous learning because our context, our capabilities are more complex. Um, our context informs how our capabilities are evolving. Mm -hmm. So I hope that answers your question, but it's like all these pieces that make up workplace culture, they were in a time where what created success was different than the, the goals were different than today. And therefore the way we get there needs to change as well. No, definitely. I, I think that um, 
So we're trying to kind of figure out, okay, what is the future going to look like right now, especially after 2020 in this crazy year. And I think that it's so helpful to understand where are, did we come from and what, um, what philosophies informed our workplace culture now, you know, like, I mean, why do we do some of the things that we do, even though that they're, they're not the most efficient, you know, um, the most efficient ways to do them in our current reality. So I think it's really fascinating to learn about, okay, you know, we came from an industrial age and where we were all trying to create, like you said, like trying to just um, mass produce the same things over and over again. And that's why we trained the people the way that we did, you know, but so, okay, so now, <laughs> so now we have, you know, we need to make people do all these creative complex things. Um, how, so, what, so what is the learning cluster design model and how does that fit into the, you know, to, to what our vision of the future really is? Yeah, so thanks for asking that. So I think that there's, so we talked about the millennial myth and I, I've kind of mentioned this designing for modern learning book, which we just, it's pretty exciting because it came out in June, yeah. which is fun doing a book launch during COVID is published yeah. by CD. Um, and designing for modern learning is all about this new model. And that's the learning cluster design model. And I referenced how we had this workshop. We were teaching it for about five years. And then we wrote the book and now we're doing this virtually. So what is this actual model? Um, so the model is what we did. And it, it's so important to understand where we're coming from, to understand where we need to go. And that's something I, I believe like that really goes into it. So my colleague and I, Lisa MD Owens, we actually really took apart and studied what are all of the things that have changed um, over the last 20 or so years and, and how do we as L&D evolve based on that. And so when we did this study, that's really what led to our model. And what we found was that a, co a couple of big things. One is that the fundamental job of L&D is kind of becoming a little bit outdated. So we benchmarked over 30 instructional design models in this work and all of them, even some of our most current models like design thinking or agile, they're based on an assumption that our job is to create one thing. Um, so if we're given a challenge, we're gonna create a class, a program, a set of videos, an e-learning, whatever, it's just one thing. But that's not how people learn today. We all, whenever we're faced with something, if you think about the last time you learned something new or you had a problem, you probably drew on multiple different sources. And you know, if you were really learning a capability, you probably drew on multiple different sources over a period of time. Right. Um, and it was probably a bunch of different ways, times, and places. Well, guess what? We don't have a model that teaches us how to build multiple learning assets in a coordinated fashion like that. And so learning cluster design is the answer to that challenge. And that's what we really saw as the gap. And, you know, we, there's this huge buzzword this year in the flow of work. And, you know, we want everything to be in the flow of work. And some people think it's impossible. Well, it's impossible if all you're doing is designing one thing. How is right. one class going to address flow of work? Right. You really need to design multiple assets and you can't just design multiple assets for one target audience. So another big thing that we see as a gap is in the past, L&D was limited by technology. So it was all about what we had available 
And so we couldn't give them, give different learners what they need. Well, today we do have all those different ways. So it, it isn't about one target audience, it's about diverse learner personas and trying to make it more learner-centered and business-centered rather than L&D-centered. So it's no longer about what can we deliver, it's about what do they need, and then let me think of the ways we can design these multiple learning assets to, to give them what they need. Yeah. So in our model, we have five different actions that guide L&D to create what we call learning cluster. And a learning cluster is this new learning product that's not a class, course, or program, but it's a set of learning assets designed for multiple learner personas for different times and places, not even necessarily planned moments. So we distribute our learning assets between formal, social, and immediate, 24-7 available kinds of places, times, and ways. Cool. Um, so yeah, we have five actions. We have tools for each of these actions uh, that we teach. And um, that's the essence of it. We're all about moving beyond one and done, beyond the single target audience, and also designing these learning assets with respect to one another. So there are companies that, organizations that design multiple things, but they don't think about them in relation to one another or with a, one strategic goal in mind. And yeah we're all focused on changing on the job behavior. So that's the last big difference I'll say with this model is in the past, changing behavior back on the job was an ideal. It's something we hope to do and aspire to do. And of course we wanna do, but we didn't have a lot of control after that class or after that e-learning. We don't know what happens because all we did was design one thing. So when you're designing multiple things, you now have greater confidence that you are actually contributing to that performance back on a job. So for us, performance support is not like a auxiliary second hand, second uh, stepchild. It's equivalent in importance to that formal learning that you might also have in your learning cluster. Yeah. And I feel like having so many different points of learning um, creates a little feedback loop. You can adjust the, you know, like it, as opposed to the one and done that you were talking about before, you know, then you don't get an opportunity to kind of revise and go back to it. Um, right. And folks often get concerned like, oh, wow, you know, is this going to be a ton more work? And it's really, well, hey, you know, you used to cram all of this content into one moment of time. Mm -hmm. And you had people who said, well, this didn't feel like it was for me or, you know, it's, it's just too much to take away. So oftentimes we're working from the same content pool you had, but you're putting it into different assets um, across those different times and places. And we also leverage a lot of crowdsourcing to help. Like I said, like now that expert is kind of the table stakes and we're looking for the more that the community creates and using that to then enhance that base um, foundation. Yeah. So it's actually not as much as people would think there is more management involved um, or probably more like front end also thinking, but it's not as much as people would think and the results make it worth it. Okay. So, so can you give us an example of what that looked like for maybe a client of yours? Um, Like how did you implement the learning cluster design into their learning model and what were the different assets that you used kind of, how did you sprinkle them around? I guess I just want to know what this looks like you know, in the, 
So there was um there was actually a project I did for General Mills where they were going through a really big culture change initiative for their manufacturing plants from a work process standpoint. So they wanted their teams to work in a completely different way. And a part of that was they had folks who were going to assess um, compliance to this work process change. And so they had a, a standard operating procedure uh, like a couple page PDF for this assessing role uh, when they called me in to work on this. So originally they were like, okay, you know, we want training. Everyone says that, right? Like we want training. So their expectation is, okay, we're gonna build a class expanded upon from this SOP. But by going through the model, there were a lot of things we discovered. So we first focus on the change, we call it the change on the job behavior action. That's where we set our goal for the learning cluster. And when we set that goal, you know, I'm asking them, what do you really want to see differently on the job as a result of this? Like, if this worked, what would people be doing differently on the job? And immediately we learned that folks, they didn't want folks to just do like a compliance checklist, but they, coaching was a huge part of this. These assessors were plant managers. They were managers in the actual plants and they wanted them to coach their team. So immediately we had a huge shift in our focus. You know, if you just had the SOP and you designed a training, you'd be so focused on what you want people to know. But this was more focused on what do we want them to be able to do with this? And we already reoriented a lot of that content and thinking through that. So then when we started looking at learner personas, we learned a lot about their different manufacturing plans. That gave us some interesting insight. We then actually looked at their initial SOP and we have an action called upgrade action um, to see how can you take this SOP and make it a more modern learning experience. And so we learned a few things there that we wanted to include. So what we ended up with was we ended up with about five assets. So nothing, so again, this isn't as like, sometimes people think, oh, we're gonna create like 30 things and it's gonna be this huge elephant that we can't manage. And we ended up with five things. And um, we had the class with the PowerPoint and all that that we developed. We had this SOP that was now more of a job aid. It had case studies in there and a rubric so people would know, okay, if I work at this kind of plant, this is the kind of situation I might encounter versus this other kind of plant. And that all came from the learner personas telling us what kind of situations they actually see on the ground. Um, so that was really cool as an upgrade to their SOP instead of just following the instructions and having all this ambiguity around how do I actually apply this in my world. We included those case studies to make it a lot more relevant and it's not a one and done thing right they use that job aid 24 seven accessible to them and they choose when they use it. All of the other assets were focused on coaching and we really emphasize the social component so. We had a coaching self-assessment. So that was actually more of an immediate item that they could reflect on after their interactions when assessing um, people in their site. Um, they could reflect on and see where they might wanna improve their capability. We had peer coaching set up so assessors could connect with one another and they have like a coaching conversation guide that they could practice their coaching skills. Um, and ideally where we wanted to head with that was to have kind of a community. So people could actually post, you know, ran into this challenge, you know, how might I encounter, how might I go through with that? Mm -hmm. So that's just an idea of some of those assets. And so you think about that difference 
in the old world, we would have taken that SOP, probably created a 200 slide PowerPoint deck, you know, a half day or a full day training, and that would have been it. And that's all we would have to have confidence that this is going to actually work. Now we had the class, we had the SOP upgraded that they could use in the moment, a coaching skills self-assessment they could use in the moment, a coaching conversation guide, a peer coaching community. And, you know, how much more confidence do you think that would have created that this is actually going to work, right? So that's a pretty like end-to-end -end example of how a learning cluster process looks like and the kind of output you might get. Yeah, that's amazing. I want to go through that. <laughs> like, I, I all workplaces need to have this. <laughs> and I'm so, I, yeah. I mean, because you're so right. You need all these different points of access for um, learning. And, you know, okay, I get the class and then two days later I have a problem. Like, you know, I can't message the facilitator again. I want to go to a different, you know, I want to see the information in a different way so that I can solve for this problem. So that's, that's amazing. That's so yeah. cool. And what's funny to me with this is like a lot of times, again, we make this very learner and business centered. So it's, you know, L&D can sit there all day long and be like, well, I think this would be a cool thing to include. This would be a cool thing to include. But that's what L&D thinks. Our model really helps us investigate what is the business need. So we learn the business needs coaches, right? And that created new assets. Mm -hmm. What do the learners need? And we learned, wow, they live at these different manufacturing sites. So they really need these case studies and they really need to possibly be able to connect with one another, um, you know, maybe in similar kinds of scenarios. So right. we really, our model really helps us put the learner and the business in the center to guide our decisions on design rather than, okay, well, these are the flashy, cool technologies we have available. How can right. we use them in this? And, and, you know, when you do that, you end up getting the same learning cluster every time. So that's what I often see. And it's like, it still doesn't meet learner needs. Yeah. Um, so you got to let the learners drive. What's the assets we need? You know, what are they most likely going to use? What do they need in their day-to-day -day context? Uh, because we're not in our personal lives. In our personal lives, we can use our time to learn. It's our choice. But at work, we don't have time to figure out how do I want to learn this thing. I right. would much rather have someone have studied me and recommend me. Here's like the best ways for you. Right. And let me do my job and let me not let learning take up my entire day. Right. So so is it um, is it your idea that this process that you're talking about, that's really what L&D should be about now, um, as opposed to just developing kind of workshops or trainings or something like L&D managers should go through this process and figure I, out. Yeah, I mean, I definitely believe that designing multiple learning assets is the future of L&D. And that, you know, this model is one of the, I still haven't come across another model that does this, um, that has that as the center. Mm -hmm. So, yes, do I think everyone should at least, you know, be intrigued enough to check it out? <laughs> and I'll say it plays nice with all of our expertise in the past. So something that's really important to me is honoring the past and seeing where it's still relevant and has value. So when you get down to designing each of those individual learning assets, all of our models are amazing, whether you use Addy, SAM, Agile, um, you know, if you're working on learner personas and you are a fan of design thinking, design thinking can really help get some of that data 
to build out your learner personas. And then the learning cluster design model then tells you how to take all that data and put it in the strategic context for your learning design. Um, so I don't see this model as exclusive of other models people love and use and are, and are experts in. I see it as an a new umbrella that we don't really have because we've never thought of our jobs as designing multiple learning assets for and, and not necessarily for everything. There might still be, again, this is all based on we believe, we believe that everyone is super intelligent and creative. You know, everyone I've met in LD were super creative. We came to this field for a reason. So the model works with your expertise. It, it doesn't sit here and dictate what you should do from a prescriptive standpoint. So you might look at a particular capability and say, you know, this is fine if it's a one and done event. We don't need a whole full-blown learning cluster for this. It really just needs to be a one and done thing. And maybe that is your favorite compliance topic. Um, you just wanna refresh people on it once a year. Fine, that's great. But for things that you really want um, to hone in as a, this is a core capability for our organization or for a function or for a role, you might really wanna think about that learning arc and not just that foundational one and done event, but what do people have when they run into problems? What do they have when they need a refresh? What do, what does 2.0 of that skill look like? And how are they growing that all the time, not just in, you know, in those formal events and curriculas that we've designed in the past? Definitely, no, that's, that's so cool. I definitely think it's the future. Uh, talk about building our vision. Like I, that would be, a great, you know, future vision to kind of work for, work towards for everybody. Um, and yeah, so, okay, so if anybody wants to reach out to you to talk more about this or to have, you know, to do a workshop or something, what's the best way to get in touch with you? So I'm very easy to find on LinkedIn. There's only one Crystal Kadakia, I believe, on the planet, which is very <laughs> cool um, in this digital age. That's, that's really awesome. Cool. Um, you can find Designing for Modern Learning on Amazon. And also if you're an ATD member, I think through the ATD bookstore, you get a discount. So a little tip for folks who are saving. Um, and other than that, uh, www.learningclusterdesign.com. Um, but you know, if you, it, you can always just connect with me and I'll, I'll be happy to link you up with our team for any questions you have and also talk to you personally. Awesome. Yeah. So we'll definitely put all of your contact information um, in all of our, uh, you know, in the YouTube box and on LinkedIn and stuff uh, for anybody that wants to reach out. Please reach out to Crystal. I mean, this has been a, such an illuminating conversation. Uh, I feel like I've learned a ton um, and I feel like I've gotten a new friend. <laughs> um, so, so. Thanks everybody for watching. Um, if you wanna find any of our other episodes, you can check it out on the ATD Greater Atlanta YouTube page, um, our LinkedIn page, as well as our website, atdatlanta.org. I'm Neha Shingane. Uh, stay safe everybody and see you next time.